again everybody and welcome to another episode of trial by fire hope you guys are having a good week and you're getting outside as often as can as you can the weather seems to be really changing now well the seasons at least i've noticed that all the trees now have really come into their own and they're really starting to flourish it's a it's a beautiful time of the year to really see the changing of the seasons. so hope you guys are getting out and enjoying that um my guest today is a man named greg Fennell. Um, an amazing photographer who I've followed for quite a while now. I really love his work. He's he shot commercial uh, stuff in the past, um, but he's also shot a lot of, um, I suppose, lifestyle photography, um, travel photography. He's spent time with some tribes. He's spent time in conflict zones, um, has shot some really interesting celebrities as well. Um, really beautiful aesthetic to his work, and it's been um, something that I've really wanted to do is get him on the show and kind of talk about some of that stuff. He's gotten into bushcraft and stuff recently, so it's one of the reasons why we uh, we ended up connecting. And uh, it's really interesting to see how someone crosses over from or using the skill sets um, from each of those different worlds and, and things like that. So it was a really uh, great conversation and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, but just before we get into that, I did want to really quickly mention that our Patreon is now up and running and live. Um, so if you guys are interested um, in helping out with the podcast, as I said, the podcast is never going to go away. It's always going to be free. But if you do want some bonus content, some extra episodes each month, um, there's going to be an opportunity where we're going to have some Q&A sessions where you can call in either to me or to the person I'm talking with um, and ask your questions on the show uh, live and those will be recorded of course so that's going to be another perk of uh, being a member of the Patreon account we're also going to have some merchandise t-shirts, posters um, lots of stuff coming your way so make sure you guys check that out so that's uh, just Trial by Fire podcast on, um, on Patreon I would really appreciate it um, if you guys could check that out um, and then also on Apple Podcasts, if you could rate and review, um, it really helps to boost those numbers. Um, but that's the sales pitch over. Um, enjoy this uh, interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And I will see you guys very soon um, for another episode. But uh, enjoy the podcast and I'll talk to you soon. But Greg Funnell, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to finally get you on here. No, yeah, man. I'm I'm excited to be on. I'm a I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's kind of an honor. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, man. I'm a big fan of your your podcast as well. Um, for people who don't know who uh, Greg Funnell is, he's a photographer, um, very accomplished photographer, both in um, commercial, but also I suppose lifestyle and um, some current event stuff as well, um, and has recently gotten into uh, kind of outdoors and bushcraft stuff which is kind of how we ended up chatting and um ended up going down the really nerdy photography slash bushcraft uh, conversation route so that's that's how how myself and greg have met but um could you want to tell us a little bit about your background just for people who maybe aren't aware of your work greg yeah so i um i work as a photographer um based in london um i've been doing it for over 15 years now I studied um, history and war studies at university and when mm -hmm. I kind of first graduated I wanted to become a photographer and I started to but I wanted to specifically be a photojournalist and documentary photographer 
-hmm. And so for the first couple of years, I kind of um, found myself chasing stories and ending up in silly situations and going to places that were maybe more dangerous than I should have been going to. Um, and, and kind of, you know, created my own path really in the, in the photographic world, because I didn't know anyone who was a photographer. I didn't know how you made a living, uh, in that kind of profession. So I kind of bumbled along basically making all sorts of gaffes here and there and <laughs> figuring yeah. it all out as I went along. Um, yeah. and now I, I, I predominantly shoot kind of, I still do a bit of documentary work. Um, and up until this little thing that happened last year with the global pandemic i was shooting quite a lot of travel uh work um and yeah i still kind of get hired for that kind of documentary um vibe i guess so i still shoot my these you know long-term personal projects where i'll go off and say spend a month with gauchos in argentina or go off and uh you know work for ngos uh in various kind of places across Africa and Asia and what have you. So it's a really, really kind of mixed um, career. Yeah, no, I mean, I think for me, the stuff, uh, I mean, obviously the commercial stuff is beautiful and some of the celebrities you've, you've shot, I mean, you've got a chance to meet Stephen Hawking, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the thing, the work that stands out to, for me the most is the, the travel stuff. And purely from the point of view of, um, I suppose, from what I understand of your work, you seem to be drawn to subcultures or countercultures or dying cultures almost. Um, mm. And, you know, whether that's shooting tribes in Africa and things. And for me, I think, I mean, to tie it into the podcast, I suppose, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here was that for me, I think bushcraft is a sim has a similar kind of um, uh, discipline or sort of mode wherein we're trying to keep these old traditions alive we're trying to record and document old ways mm. um is there anything within that that kind of naturally drew you to, to being like to getting into the outdoors or, or what what is it yeah. that sort of draws you to that i think it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation really i mean mm. through doing the kind of photography that i was doing um you know I, when i graduated I, I basically ended up uh almost accidentally covering the Israel Hezbollah war in 2006 and then kind of went on from that and was doing um, work in former Yugoslavia and then various other places. And a lot of those kind of countries where you're working in those situations, you are, you're out in the elements, you're spending a lot of time outside and it's that kind of idea of survival and, and, you know, on a, on a basic level to some degree. And I, it, I probably didn't realize it at the time, but it was kind of something that I'd I'd had as a love of since I was you know was, since I was a Boy Scout, and right, right. I you know a kind of an interest in in the in the military to some extent. But although I never, I decided quite early on I didn't I I would I'd be useless in the army, um, <laughs> but but yeah. So it's it's kind of that interest mixed with. Um, the photography was always an excuse for me to be learning and to, to kind of take myself into places and into situations and learn. And originally that was kind of, you know, quite political. That was where my background was like, you know, interested in politics. And as I've kind of grown a bit older, I guess my interests have been, as you said, kind of looking at cultures that perhaps are changing and using the photography as a way of kind of preserving it and trying to... to 
uh, well, I, I guess preserve it, but also for me in a selfish way, it's kind of a way of me exploring. It's an excuse for me to go somewhere and to learn. And so, you know, you talk about like kind of shooting tribes, you know, that was a, I did a story in Tanzania where I went and photographed the Hadza tribe. Um, and they're an amazing hunter-gatherer tribe. And to be able to go and to kind of witness them and to kind of see them in action and see these, these amazing bush skills that they have um, under the guise of doing a travel story, it was just amazing. Right. It's just like the best yeah. excuse to go and just be a, no, a nosy little gobshite, basically. Yeah, I can't even imagine. <laughs> what I, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, we all grew up with you know watching ray mears and and you know and the likes and, and bbc and, and even like attenborough and things and you i mean i remember watching uh, michael palin's uh around the oh, world with, with my dad years ago series it was so great good so, so good um and he was just in this in this uh mode of of exploring the world and i remember sitting watching it with my dad on tv and my dad has gone imagine that was your job Imagine just imagine somebody paid you to go and see these amazing places, and and you know now I'm I'm lucky enough to to know people and personally that you know they have made their passions into their life and their way of making money and stuff. And for me, I think that's it's an inspirational thing to be able to do, and and not a lot mm. of people manage to carve that out. Um, so that's awesome, man. And and it's again, as I said, it's one of the one of the main reasons why I, why I like your work so much. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about those tribes? So, I mean, how much of, of knowledge would you have about these uh, kind of places that you're going into before you kind of make the trip? Is there a lot of research involved? Are you looking at their kind of ways of living? Because I would imagine that you should probably, well, I don't know if you should or need to, but understand the nuances of those cultures in order to understand what it is you're trying to capture. Is that something yeah. that kind of comes into I mean, I always try and do as much research as I can, and it's, it can be totally dependent, though, on what else I've got going on. If I'm coming straight off the back of another job, you sometimes, you know, your research ends up being crammed into the hours yeah, that you're on a plane. Um, and it really depends on the situation on the ground and who the story's for. You know, sometimes when you're working with NGOs, you'll have a local team that you're working with, so you'll have kind of translators and people that you can talk to kind of in your downtime as well and try and get up to speed because the the thing with photography is it kind of um you know you need to be able to read people and read situations to know whether or not it's an acceptable time to take pictures etc right. and and also to to not just be the the white guy who's kind of turning up and taking the exotic picture you know you've got to be respectful you've got to, to do their... yeah you've got to be massively respectful otherwise yeah. you know you're ruining it for everyone and you're also just you're being a bad ambassador and i think it's so but i have such a passion for travel as something that i think would it's is it's something that's you know I'm, it's a real privilege to be able to do but i also think it's something it's such a great opportunity to learn about the world and to grow as a person and i i kind of feel like i you know some some of the experiences i have i just wish that everyone could have them in that sense because you just think well if more people could see this for themselves they'd be more respectful of this they'd have less issues about that you know they'd understand more stuff to do with climate change and looking up you know like the things that you see when you realize you know across the world and you just kind of it, it shrinks the world for you um but at the same time it it does the opposite of that at the same time if that makes any sense it makes you realize how kind of insignificant we are and how 
like how we are this like little blip on the kind of um <laughs> this little drop of sand in the hourglass of the universe you know um if that you know so it's it's humbling and i think that's a really important thing because when you're humbled you um are more respectful in general but yeah so for me hugely important to do not always that easy but just um yeah i think it's something you gotta gotta put your time in yeah yeah absolutely um I did want to talk to you about uh, it kind of, I suppose, talks a little bit about because you obviously have worked in some of uh, some very dangerous situations. You, you said you've you've um, you've worked through kind of conflict zones and through uh, things like that. Um, is there anything beyond your photography skills that are necessary to be able to, uh, I suppose, you can't just stroll into you know, a newspaper and say, I want to go over here and shoot this like conflict, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, the nowadays, I mean, when I first kind of went and did that, I pretty much just did do that. I didn't you did go do, into okay. a newspaper. Right. I just got on a plane and went somewhere, <laughs> right. which was, which was yeah. a really dumb thing to do. I think I bought my flat jacket on eBay and it arrived right. two days before I flew. <laughs> you bought your flat jacket on eBay. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was 21 and I was, I was right. an idiot. Um, and you know, you, you, you have to go through certain situations before you kind of realize the seriousness of it. And I think when you're younger, you have that sense of invincibility. And I think any of that kind of, uh, I don't even want to call it courage because it's not courage. It was more stupidity, but if you want to call it like courage in inverted commas, any, any of that that I had is now gone. Um, because I've, I've seen, you know, what happens when it goes wrong. And I've I've seen that with my own eyes and I've also seen it happen to colleagues and what have you and heard of it happening to colleagues. So it kind of makes you a lot more, um, again, humble, I guess, in, and realising that there's a lot more at stake here. And there's also, I've got, you know, I've got a, a, a young um, lad now and, um, you know, married and what have you. So I've, I've got other people to be thinking about, not just myself. Whereas when you're younger, you can afford to be a bit selfish. Um, but in terms of kind of, yeah, I'd say anybody who's going to put themselves in those situations, the most basic thing you should do is look to do a proper first aid training. Um, I was lucky enough a few years ago to be able to do a hostile environment course, which was amazing and really, mm -hmm. really interesting. And like, even if you're not going somewhere, like it, it it's the type of thing that you, I know you would absolutely love it. Like you, right. the, the the knowledge that these guys have that run these courses is just insane, and they pack so much in. It's like a week long course, and it's it's just information overload. What kind of stuff would they would they be teaching you? So you could be doing anything from um, operational awareness to understanding kind of how um, to to run kind of basic your your basic kind of admin when you're in country basically uh, like um you know situational awareness situational right. safety right. you're going to be doing trauma training you're going to be doing basic navigation you're going to be doing escape and evasion training wow, um, okay. looking at kind deep. of it can do i mean it's, it's when i say that when you say that deep i mean it's it's so kind of on the surface but they need to give you a grounding in all of it because the course. people that they're teaching are you know, working, there might be one week, you know, one team might go off to work on the front line in Ukraine and another team might be working for an NGO in, in Somalia or something like that. And so the, the dangers that you're facing are very different. I mean, it could be that you, 
you know your the primary danger is going to be an ied or it's going to be minefields or it's going to be whereas somewhere else you go it could be cybersecurity. it could be the fact that you're going to be hacked it could be the fact that you're going to be a target for kidnap um so the course tries to just give like an overarching sense of kind of understanding and there's you know there's some real little tidbits in there and things that you know a food for thought and it could be basic stuff like you know <laughs> it sounds stupid but one of the things i remember you know them talking about was like always kind of having a doorstop in your kit if you're if you're staying somewhere where there's a, a threat of kidnap because okay. you know, putting a check right, right. putting a check putting a chain on your hotel door is not going to really or a chair anyone, against it or something yeah or it's actually a doorstop wedged under the door could give you a vital kind of like extra couple of minutes to bug out a window or something (laughs) that's crazy man you know so little tiny little things uh, looking you know when you're staying in hotels making sure the hotel's got a standoff so that you know like a a, basically a big long drive so if there's a car bomb or anything like that you're making sure you're not staying kind of near the front of the hotel where that's a higher risk knowing where all your fire escapes are um all sorts i mean honestly you you just get your head stuffed full of it and then there's a day at the end of the course where they kind of put it all into action and basically just abuse you and put you on a on in a situation where they kind of end up you basically end up getting kidnapped and interrogated oh man. <laughs> much to their amused much to the course leader's amusement because basically wow. if you've been a, a little shit all week or a bit of a know-it-all they can just like absolutely <laughs> beast you for a day <laughs> man, <that laughs> kind of like so you cool. end up running around in a wood in wales in the rain with like just in your socks and a orange jumpsuit <laughs> crying for oh your mum <laughs> well i guess yeah. you know if you the only way to i mean to like actually replicate that so a situation like that is to really kind of at least on a base level understand what what that would feel like you know yeah um, and i mean the thing is in those situations when the sh- like situations where the shit hits the fan it's you you kind of you so much goes out the window like in terms mm-hmm. of how you actually start to function when the adrenaline hits the body it's amazing what a difference it can make and how it can make some people and break other people it's yeah, a whole we kind were... of fight or flight mentality absolutely Jeremias and I were only talking about this on the last episode we watched um some films and we talked about uh you know some outdoor films and talked about the situations and one of them we watched was Castaway and Mm. uh that whole plane crash sequence um Mm. just uh, just uh situational awareness understand you know you really don't know how your body's going to react until and then and then uh one of the things that again we mentioned on the last episode was uh, John Hudson's book um, oh, amazing book yeah really fantastic great. book yeah i absolutely love it i've, I've I listened to it and, and i've read it but he he talks about the the this concept of drilling and how when you when you uh drill the plan a b and c into your head then mm. it's just second nature you know your radio's here you know blah 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 you know right we had to go to go there and it makes it frees up brain space to actually make things decisions that need to be made on the spot that aren't part of your sort of drill routine yeah, I mean, we had we had um, the not long after I'd done that course. I mean, part of the reason I was doing it was I'd I'd gone off to work in um, Mindanao in the Philippines, where the government had basically been fighting quite a long term war with the badly named Mindanao Islamic Liberation Front, wow. acronym MILF. Well, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, their their PR machine did not did not Ooh, uh, plan that. Properly. Taking that shit seriously. Try and Google <laughs> MILF to see if they, you know you can find out more about their cause, and you don't get much. Oh no. Um, <laughs> no. no. So you so basically we were working in um, Mindanao, which is an island uh, in the Philippines, and, and Marawi was a city where they've been fighting. Uh, is for six months and basically flattened the city it looked like dresden you know it was just it had become a kind of sniper haven and everything was booby trapped and what have you and so the the philippine army had quite a time kind of getting through the city it was a bit like you know fallujah or something after that was finally captured it was kind of that going from house to house and we were there way after all this so we weren't there during the fighting but still there was possibly quite a high risk of potential kidnap or you know you just never know in those situations there is a long history in in certain parts of the philippines of westerners being kidnapped for ransom um by islamic groups and um i was working with a team and they were really mixed uh, experience you know and there were people on the team that were really inexperienced for even just traveling okay and um i felt really paranoid because of this mix of abilities and the fact that I'd just done this intensive course that had kind of left okay. me somewhat sh- shell-shocked and on and from previous experiences you know like I'd um I'd kind of ended up again by accident really uh in the civil war in Central African Republic and and, and ended up being evacuated out way after we were meant to be uh, having had our passports you know taken and 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 being in all sorts of situations there, so I'd, you know, I'd, I had good reason maybe to be a bit nervous, but um, as it was, you know, the 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 week was relatively, you know, uneventful. It was there was a few situations where I got a little bit tense, you know, where you were in a convoy going into a village where the part of the kind of revolution had started, where two of the brothers, the Malt brothers, were from, and you know, it's kind of a one road in, one road out situation. So never right. ideal because you've not yeah, got perfect much kind for... of room for error. It's a perfect yeah. ambush spot. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, is that the same guy that I've spotted on that scooter that's kind of mm-hmm. stopped up ahead? Is he a spotter? Like, what is, you know, what's... And so you right, kind of have all right. those thoughts going through your head. And anyway, it was all non-eventful until the last day, and we were kind of working in a IDP camp, and it was coming to the um, end of the day, and they were creating a big um, meal to break fast, um uh ramadan and um there was a horrific crash like just this kind of you know the sound of just metal hitting stonework and um and this happened with the the camp was kind of like slightly sunken below the road and basically i realized quite quickly something quite serious had gone on and a jalopoli kind of bus one of these big kind of old american style buses had school buses had kind of careered into a crowd of people and the driver was just like gone through the windscreen type thing and and i think what had happened was someone had thrown a stone at the window and i've no idea why but there was a bit of tension in the area and you know there was this horrific scene and there's that moment where you're like what's the right thing to do here do you get involved in your limited you know my my limited first day training is probably not going to be massively useful it you might especially if you don't have the kind of kit if you don't have tourniquets and stuff on you to hand then there's going to you know you can try but you're speaking in a foreign language you're going to stick out like a sore thumb 
and tensions are high and there's rumours going about that it was a stone that had been thrown by somebody, what happens if it then turns out that someone says, oh, it was Points you know, this lot that you. did it? Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, and and it was interesting because the team had a were really kind of shocked. I think quite shocked by it all. Um, and for them, it was almost like that was the moment for them when they the, the realization had dawned that actually what they were doing was they were in mm. an area which was did have serious issues. And yeah, there is that thing. And we were at you know we were in a very very privileged position because we can leave at the end of the day, and lots of people can't. I mean, that's always the the problem when you're going into those areas. You are the outsider who is. And you become acutely aware of your privilege. Absolutely, and and you just touched on something there about you know um, wanting when wondering whether or not to kind of chip in, and and it actually is one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk to you about because, you know, if you're you're going into a a, a zone or a conflict area with nothing but your camera, so to speak, and your wits, you know, uh, you know how. How does that play in your mind, as you said, when, between being... So, do you feel like it's your responsibility to document and record the things you see? Are there things that you see that you go, I don't think that's... I don't mm. think I need... Nobody needs to see that. Or is, you know, versus, you know, should I help or should I be documenting? Or, you know, I mean, there's very famous... You know, there's cases of, you know, war photographers and stuff seeing horrible things and, and the photos that they've taken, they've regretted taking the photographs. They said, you know... Um, I just wonder where what what your kind of thoughts on that. Obviously, it's going to be different depending on where you yeah, are, or case to case. It's a total minefield, really, and I think it's probably mm. part of the reason why I, I decided quite early on that I I couldn't do, you know, be a war photographer. Like right. was that 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 feeling of um, the ethical dilemmas that you're faced with in such quick succession. Mm-hmm. and what type of person you are and whether or not you're willing to stick a camera in a face for the sake of a photo at, at risk of upsetting somebody in the now in order to take a picture that lasts for prosperity. And right. there's definitely arguments to say that actually short-term kind of uh, situations where you might upset one or two people versus actually informing a huge swathe of people yes. is very different. But now yeah. I think like with camera phones and stuff, that argument's slightly redundant because... Mm. Mm. Uh, everybody's you taking know, the shots yeah. Uh, yeah and and to be honest i i'm not the type of person that would do that even i'm not the type of person who'd get my phone out and film something i mean we had it's a bit of a random thing but literally the other day unfortunately outside my house there was a gentleman that was hit by a, a scooter a moped and um i was in the house and i i heard it how i heard my wife kind of come running down and she'd seen that she'd heard it happen and it was literally right outside our door it was kind of a busy road and so I ran out and immediately got involved. But there, because I would kind of saw the situation and no one was really doing anything, everyone was just stood there with their phone out, kind of doing that, you know, oh, my God, oh, my God, kind of like, and someone needed to get in there and basically take charge Help and be guy, like, right, yeah. this is what needs to happen. You need to get on the phone to the ambulance. That You need to yeah. like hold that pad, stem the bleeding, do this, do that, you know, just kind of like giving people, assigning give people, people a, responsibilities and. It's like yeah, you there and you there in the blue coat. You called the police. Just you there and would yeah. Stop everyone just doing that thing where they hide behind their phone as an observer. Right. Yeah. But also that thing of oh, this will make great content for my fucking Instagram story. Yeah, <laughs> Excuse man, my it's, French. It's, but you know, no, like it's messed it's, up, man. It's messed up. And it's weird in that situation because I've and, and I've realised that quite early on. I would I was never that comfortable with putting my camera into those situations and photographing if I didn't feel like I had. Um, 
the kind of invitation to do that. It's so important for me when I go into any situation to feel like the person who I'm photographing is comfortable with me photographing them and is happy for me to be there and I've been accepted. And sometimes, you know, on a job that you don't have time to build those relationships, but where possible, I will always try and build them because it's so important to me personally from an ethical point of view. And also personally, I think you get stronger images if you if you do it that way and and plus your this goes back to that ambassadorship and about you know not just just not being a douchebag basically yeah for <laughs> sure and and it's interesting that you mentioned there the idea the idea of everybody having a phone everybody recording it, and there's so many millions upon millions of images going up online every minute of the day um and it hasn't always been that way you know obviously with the birth of digital photography you know, and camera phones, this this has been the case. But, I mean, up till the recent past, maybe the 80s and mid-90s, a photograph had much more longevity. Um, and mm. it sort of sat in the minds of people, um, you know, much more um, predominantly. And I think what springs to mind for me is, let's say, the, the, the photographers of Vietnam, people like Larry Burroughs and, you know... Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some others. Like um, Don McCullen and yeah, exactly. Philip James Griffiths, yeah, exactly. And and some of those guys died over there. Like I know Larry Burroughs, his his um his helicopter went down in Vietnam, mm. but but he was responsible for documenting some of the most horrific kind of moments and powerful moments of that war to the point where, you know, up up until that, I mean, America were pretty much. Uh, on the side of the army of the military you know like second world war all the photographers for by and large were were propaganda pieces for the for the war effort and it was only in vietnam when you know these photographers going over for like life magazine and stuff really started to document the unapologetic realities of these things and essentially changed changed history you know like riots yeah in i mean that streets and yeah, you it was know, a turning point for the media in the States, yeah. Vietnam, because of that. Because uh, up until that point, you know, as a, as a journalist, you had an honorary rank. I think it was a, like a captain or something. So you could okay. almost like hail, hail a helicopter and get on it aboard, uh, you know, ahead of a grunt. Okay. Because, you know, you had to be looked after. So America yeah. kind of, you know, but, but at the same time, and so the media then got a lot of blame after Vietnam because it was mm -hmm. seen as, you know, oh, we lost the war because of you. And it's it's interesting, and I certainly do think it did change uh, public opinion in certain places. I mean, like the famous uh, photo by Eddie Adams of the of the uh, VC captive being executed. Yes, um, you know that's a photo, but actually, not many people realise that there's news footage of that. But okay. and, you know, not many people have seen the news footage. So the image had a lot more, um, uh, you know, was seen by a lot more people. Nowadays, I think it would be the other way around. I think the video would be online. And this is the other thing. Like back then, you're talking about something gets captured and it's in a can and no one sees it for a week or whenever, and, you know, it gets flown back and it gets developed and then it might be on the front of the newspaper. Now people can document something and it can be online and it can be ruining somebody's career or it can be... In minutes. In, you know, like indicting something, you know, like it can be... Yeah. Um, yeah, it literally can. And so I do think that there's going to be a, really interesting shift kind of i don't know i don't know like i think people are going to be super wary about this kind of stuff going forward um but i and i think just cameras are going to become more and more prevalent in terms of dash cams and you know which every you're just going to have to expect that anything that you do outside is basically going to there's going to be footage or images of it but to go back to vietnam um i mean larry burrow's massive hero of mine is uh, arguably one of the most kind of underrated 
um, so British photographers yeah. that was covering yeah. that conflict. And, 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 you know, and actually since, I mean, his, the work that he was doing in color was amazing. And if you look at, say, did a very famous story for Life magazine called Yankapapa 13, where he followed a helicopter yes. pilot oh, um, for a couple Harrowing. of weeks. And an amazing, amazing story, you know, and, and to me, though, that was like, that's a pinnacle of photojournalism of telling stories purely through still images. Um, but to do that, you have to have access and you have to have time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just, I suppose, just to um, maybe explain to people who I, I realised, I just realised that we're on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, I could literally talk to you for hours about this stuff. But but the the piece that you're talking about, essentially for people who are listening, was Larry Burroughs in Vietnam photography followed a soldier, a very fresh soldier, uh, through uh, Vietnam. And, and the way in which these magaz- uh, essays worked for Life magazine, they were more like photo essays. So it wasn't very much writing. There was a, like the, the images sort of told the story. So there was maybe, I think there was maybe 20 images in that piece. Um, and it follows this guy, this group who get on a, a helicopter. And then I think they get like shot down or something, don't they? Or so they get attacked. The, and... the other, the other helicopter got hit. Um, as they've landed, the South Vietnamese troops have got off the, off the chopper and he runs across to the other helicopter to try and save the pilot who'd been yes. hit and he takes him, puts him in you a know, fireman's lift, takes him back to the helicopter. And Larry, you know, got the whole thing. Um, he got, and it's interesting, they actually, Life magazine actually doctored one of the photos to cover the face of the soldier in the bottom of the helicopter because he died and they didn't want to show his identity. And they, actually, I think, I'm pretty sure, I, I read that they, and you can see the two, or you can see the image that they did it on, they moved a piece of clothing or they added a piece of clothing, you know, but basic retouching back then was actually with a paintbrush. Um, but he, you know, he, he told the story in a way that people weren't telling. He mounted one of his cameras for a start, like on the on the on the mount arm for the M60 machine gun, which is on the, on the, the helicopter, on the helicopter. Yeah. And no one had really seen that angle of view before. He was doing stuff with cameras that, you know, no one had seen yeah but he also had the empathy and you know the the pictures really are powerful because of the subject because of the young lad that he's photographing who looks like a boy basically you know like he is a boy and you see the, his face after he's gone through that encounter he's just the, i've never seen such grief or despair on someone's mm. face and the ability to be able to capture that with a camera and you'd wonder like you're saying what is the response not the responsibility but what is the relationship between larry and that and that uh soldier wherein does, is that soldier aware even he probably doesn't care that he's being photographed at that stage but you have to remember as well that larry's probably twice the age of that guy yeah right you know he's he's lived and got his own experiences and stuff and he's bringing all of that to what he's photographing and i of think course. that's what the best photographers do they they, they bring that empathy with them mm-hmm. you know yeah, for sure. Um, shall we bring it? We'll bring it back around to bushcraft a little bit, or a little bit more around to the outdoors. Because oh, I mean, yeah. as I said, that is <laughs> super interesting stuff, dude. And you know, I'm photography is my is my second passion, or one of my main passions in life. So absolutely, and actually, I remember getting a hardback of Larry Burrow's work when I was maybe sixteen. Um, found it in a bookshop and uh, man I must have looked over that thing a hundred times I just poured over those mm. photographs I still do I still have the book um, but I love his work but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your um, kit bag that you bring with you because um, I saw I noticed that you had a blog piece around the things that you keep in your kit in your 
go bag essentially and a lot mm. of those things there's a big crossover there um, between the types of things that let's say for want of a better word like a prepper or like uh, someone who wants to be prepared will have a go bag say under their stairs or something like that um, and I wonder has any did your did your training in um, conflict uh, zone training um, have any bearing on the types of things you chose to put in your bag and what, what kind of stuff do you have in there um yeah i guess a little bit like i mean a lot of it's quite boring travel stuff that over the years you realize okay i'm i'm just going to need this in my kit so you know uh, when i say boring i'm talking as as boring as having like i have a travel passport wallet that has things like you know uh safety pins in because that's not boring get, you know like, why do you have why do you have safety pins um or paper clips and safety pins paper clips predominantly actually to take change sims on phones <laughs> okay all right so not to get yourself um, out of handcuffs <laughs> no no not not that exciting um Some things like stuff. things like having a so like having the outside of your passport marked with something okay. like distinguishing features so and i learned that at, you know it's really useful when your passport's in a pile with a bunch of colleagues passports that are checkpoint or something mm. being able to keep an eye on where your passport is in the pile mm. and where it, who's walked off with it because quite often you know you get stopped at a roadblock you hand your id over and it gets given to a person and they walk off with it to a hut or they do this and you know and like you very quickly you can lose track of where things are and and that thing might just help you spot where your passport is or spot your id documents things like that that's um, interesting uh you know the normal i have like always have a head torch always have a multi-tool always have my leatherman kind of in the mm. bag um i have you know waterproof bags for my for money for documents i have uh, all i mean yeah lots of lots of kind of you know paracord and and, and clothes have the paracord. <laughs> and again you're, you're gonna be like oh Doorstep. exciting what, what's that for and i'm like literally <laughs> to hang my washing um <laughs> Because again, you know, you get to a hotel room, yeah, you don't have a washing line. Yeah, of um, I have eggs. electrical tape, super right. useful thing to always have. Uh, you know, always like loads of carabiners. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've done a whole like YouTube video actually that kind of meticulously goes through my bag and is kind of like, and this is why I use this. Oh, that's cool, <laughs> it's man. Like total nerd off. No, for sure. What um, what what head torch are you using? Um, so I have the, oh, I have an Olight, um, partly Ooh, because, nice. uh, yeah, and it's, it's okay. I mean, I think I kind of got the one that was a bit too heavy, but I wanted it as a torch, but then also, you know, you can put it onto the harness and actually use it as a head torch as well. Okay. So it's like, maybe like, is it the, like the, what's it? The H, the H2, H2R. Yeah. H2R you can is the one I've got. Yeah. Remove. I think it's like, what, 2000 lumens or is like, it's pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah, pretty strong. Uh, yeah. USB charged again, which isn't ideal. Mm. I'd prefer to have something battery powered because ultimately yeah. you can always pick up AA batteries. Yeah. Nowadays you can pretty much always charge things. Right. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think what else is in there. I mean, I my Leatherman is like a yeah, always have that, and I have that with a little, um, a little glass breaker that sits in with it, because um, uh, that was something you know that was. I don't have one in my kit, but like a seatbelt cutter, they encourage you to travel with if you're working in for NGOs, because quite often you'll be in, say, a pickup truck, but you know, or a four by four, and the biggest risk actually in a lot of these places is is road traffic accidents. 
mm-hmm. um, and getting you know, stuff. You th- you're brother. in a car that rolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and you're you're well equipped. Well, yeah. I mean, I say I'd say that, but then that then sits in my bag. So, <laughs> you know, like I try and keep stuff on my person when I'm working, depending very much on the job. But in on those kind of jobs which are a bit more fruity for once of a better word i would it would probably be wearing like a kind of harness system that's almost like what uh, a soldier be wearing in terms of like webbing yeah 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 Yeah. so everything hangs off the shoulder and the belt and it's kind of will be my cameras lenses you know phone everything that i need on my person i might be kind of tucked away or hidden away um yeah that makes total sense i i often wondered when you see photographs or photographs of photographers in conflict zones when they're wearing like a full thing and you're wondering you know what does a, a photographer need apart from lenses but now that you mentioned those things i mean it makes perfect sense that you know they need to be protected and need to protect themselves just as much as as any soldier or or, or anybody needs to be in in that situation though and that's that's really, and the, really the worst thing is you've you've quite often you will have i mean this wasn't obviously a conflict zone but like last year i was i was in kenya on a job and we were we were um walking across the mara so we're on foot you know out in 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 the um kind of in the bush and so mm-hmm. we had a hunter with us or our guide was a hunter so he had like a, a very high caliber rifle because probably the biggest risk actually you know people think oh a lion or a, or an elephant or something but actually the biggest risk it would have probably come from a buffalo um you so know like need a, uh, you need a big ass rifle you know, for some, that shit yeah something with serious stopping power but yeah. ultimately i'm i'm having to walk with not only all my water for the day and all kind of you know protection from the sun and probably some kind of blade and cordage and just general stuff that you might want in a situation should you get separated you know but then also all my camera kit and a drone yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, a, and a drone shit man that's a lot of that's yes. a lot of work and what um what are you carrying at the moment just photography nerd wise what are you shooting with predominantly um so on jobs like that where weight is more of an issue i'm shooting the fuji xt4 um normally in london i'm a canon man and i may well be getting the r5 at some point that was that was my next question (laughs) (laughs) i also shoot quite a lot of film cameras though so i have a wide Mm. lux which is like a japanese swing lens camera Mm -hmm. i will you know i might have a like a small 35 mil like my leica m6 i was i was working with um it really depends on the job. I mean, I'm I'm terrible for like I'm I'm like this when I'm camping. I'm the worst. My brother constantly takes a piss out of me. I'm like the worst lightweight camper. Okay, I'll turn up and he'll be like, "What the hell have you got in your bag?" And I'll Just, be like, what "I needed two of you know? these." And yeah, yeah. And and when you're a photographer and you're going out uh, camping, it's you're carrying more weight than anybody. I mean, like I'm like yourself. Mm. I usually have my camera, three batteries, two lenses, a drone, a tripod. You know, uh, a smaller tripod. You know, it's just like a microphone, um, and that in and of itself is a pack. You know, yeah. Um, but I, it's funny that you mentioned the wide looks there, actually, because I noticed that you shot uh, Jeff Bridges. You've taken a photo of Jeff Bridges. Yeah. If that's right. In the day. Have, you, yeah. have you seen his wide looks work? Yes. I didn't know about it at the time that I photographed. So I photographed him years ago, probably over 10 years ago. And okay. um, I wish I'd known about the work. But at the time, I didn't own a wide look. So it would have been a bit redundant. But yeah, he he... I think what you're referring to is he basically used to shoot behind the scenes on all those films on this camera. And for those who don't know what a, a, a 
wide lux is it's a swing lens panoramic so the lens actually rotates it's a bit like an old back in the day when people used to joke about how in their school photo they'd be able to like be in the photo one side and then run around to the other side and be in it which probably means nothing to kind of any younger people listening who only know digital cameras but old school film cameras would actually have a clockwork lens that that moved and this has the same but in a very small package and uh, so it photographs 140 degrees of uh, view and Jeff Bridges used to famously kind of use this camera on the end and the back end of his film sets and um, he produces books and stuff yeah beautiful work all in black and white and stuff as well i think Mm. there's a there's a super intentional uh sort of uh, uh, what's the word i'm trying to think of attitude i suppose when it comes to Mm. carrying a point and shoot camera with you particularly film Mm. um compared to your phone i think when you've got when you've got a point and shoot in your pocket, I mean, I have the the a Mu One and a Mu Two, and I have an old mm. uh, Leica Mini Lux and stuff that I like to use. Um, but the the in the the intention of carrying a thirty five millimeter to capture things like that, I think, is so lost. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. See, and I, I often wonder actually because, and this bring it back to I suppose the outdoors because I think there's a lot of people on here who are very proficient photographers when it comes to you know documenting their outdoor journeys um Mm -hmm. friends of mine who are you know uh you you know nicholas and you know nordfolk and things like that like they're all Mm. really good photographers really good at capturing their their outdoors experiences and i think the the um the skill set or i suppose the the quality the kind of average quality has really in my opinion jumped leaps and bounds and i think instagram probably has a lot to do with that as well and um, mm. so it's not always a bad thing but i often think about going the opposite way and then wondering what my outdoor and bushcraft journeys would look like if they were just taken on an old 35 millimeter point and shoot um yeah rather than yeah. i suppose the the real refined images and i think there's something really beautifully fresh about taking a photo with a 35 millimeter camera having no control over the the aperture or the shutter speed even sometimes you've got a flash or you don't have a flash you know yeah and i mean the irony is that we're probably you know a lot of us are interested in bushcraft and kind of being in the outdoors as a way mm. of kind of uh, actually getting away from all this digital noise and kind of the the, the anxiety that comes with it it's a way of slowing down and yet when you then bring into the fact that you've got to try and get content in inverted commas, it starts right. to bring all that anxiety back because you're it like, does. well, did you know, if, 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 if I don't document this trip, did it happen? Did yeah. it matter? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so I have a real kind of like love hate with that because I don't want to be doing it for that reason. You know, I want to be doing it because I enjoy doing it. Um, yeah. So maybe shooting on a film is actually, you know, it's the same, be the same as kind of, you know, do you go out and, and just light your fire with a big lighter or do you take your time and use a, you know, like a flint and steel or a ferro rod because actually yeah. you want to, you want, that's part of the, part of the process of, of, and part of the satisfaction of then getting to sit by that fire and knowing that you've actually taken the time or, you know, you've done it through a bow drill, you know, the re- why would you do that? You don't need to do that. You do that because you get the satisfaction, you get the enjoyment. That's part of it. Yeah. Um, and that's the same for film photography for me exactly exactly it's 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 um you've got 35 shots at most 36 shots at most uh mm. you you have to think about everything and you don't get to you don't get to really reap the rewards of it until afterwards um it's it's I mean, yeah it's yeah go on no as i was saying that's that's kind of almost why i 
So I I set up like a separate Instagram account that is purely kind of for my outdoors stuff yeah, I was because ask you about I that, almost yeah. got sick sick of looking at my feed and it just being you know I I work as a photographer I'm in that industry so my feed is full of of other mm-hmm. photographers showcasing their work and mm-hmm. it was almost like it was too much digital noise for me so I just mm. actually wanted a feed full of pictures of people camping and yeah. like flat lays of their gear <laughs> yeah well i did want to ask you about that so your instagram your outdoor instagram page is i believe weekend woodsman is it yeah it was kind of like a bit of a tongue-in-cheek is kind of like you know like a weekend warrior is someone who basically kind of occasionally gets out and gets to do their thing yeah. so it's yeah. like okay i can't take myself too seriously with this so i'm just gonna be the weekend woodsman yeah no i love <laughs> it it's, it's perfectly uh, uh, appropriate but I also think that the photos that you're putting up there are just as beautiful as as your as your commercial work. You know, I think mm. there's, an, there's a there's a through aesthetic there that I think is uh, is very evident in your work. I think your treatment of color, um, your post processing and your color is uh, something that I really really love, and it's something that, forgive me for saying, but I have tried to figure out how it's done and and sort of mm. sort of um, take those sensibilities into my own work. Um, but yeah, I think. It would be really cool to see for the for the the spirit that is bushcraft, for people mm. to take out their old film cameras and just shoot like around the campfire. You know, who cares if the eyes are red or you know the flash yeah. is too bright? You know, I think that stuff is cool. It's like, and I think that would make a wicked zine as well. Like, a, you know, like um, to actually have a kind of a bushcraft type magazine or something like that, where where the photography was purely analog. For sure, man. That would be so cool. <laughs> yeah. But I think people are getting back to it more. And I think there is there is a, a recall to that aesthetic that you get on, let's say, Kodak Portra or, or maybe Fuji 400. Um, mm. I mean, you see like a lot of these Lightroom presets like um, Forest Mankins and stuff where their presets are made to look like uh, film, you know, like film yeah. emulators. Yeah. So why not just shoot the real thing, you know? It's interesting. I wonder if it harks back into that same thing of why a lot of us love kind of, you know, the old stainless steel cooking pots and like the old canvas, you know, um, tarps rather than some lightweight tarp. Or, you know, like that similar thing. It's that kind of aesthetic. It's that feeling of something that's a bit more quality. It's a bit more tangible. It's a bit more kind of long lasting, perhaps. Or it's a bit more, as you said earlier, like a bit more intentional. It's got a bit more intent to it. It does. It really does. I mean, you can, if you're going to go camping with the family, you can go to your local camping shop, Halfords or whatever, and pick up whatever tent is there. But your bushcraft kit is something that is really personal. It's really special and it's really personalized. Um, and your choice of camera to some degree is the same, same thing. I mean, beyond, let's say, your standard Canon range or something like that. I mean, there's a million and one like film cameras out there that i mean i've every day i see a film camera that i've never seen before like what the hell is that mm. thing like you know my my main film camera apart from my point and shoots is my minolta srt uh, it's a 303 i believe and it was made in 1975 i bought it in it's not even an expensive camera you know it's just a mm. whatever 35 mil but i bought it in a, in a thrift shop in stockholm um when i was 21 I was living there for the year and I, I had nothing else to do creatively. I was taking a year out of design and I literally must have shot in those 11 months I was there. I probably shot maybe 400 rolls, maybe three, 400 rolls just every day, just shooting like two rolls, three rolls. Sometimes if I'm out for the evening with my friends, I might shoot four rolls and just 
this vast collection of of work from this from this year and it was such an intentional act for me that i think mm. if i had I had a digital camera i don't know where those images would be today or if i had my phone we didn't have camera yeah. phones then and um, then those images would be gone but they're not gone i have them and yeah it's mm. it's it's a beautiful lost art and, and i suppose just to round it back around it's like you're right in the sense that bushcraft kit is personal and it's intentional and it's it's heavier and it's slower and it's you know it's less you know new or whatever but it's got history and it's got a story to it and you know that it's going to last for another 20 30 years if you look after it yeah and it's that satisfaction when you use it you know when you use like a, a wood like a i'm going through a real wood burner um stage at the moment with nice like trying nice. out different types of wood burning stove trying cool. to find the one i get on with the most cool and i'm actually i'm planning to do a youtube video just kind of on my kind of thoughts on that because i've kind of gone through gasifiers i've gone through the kind of standard twig burners and the kelly kettle and the kind of um you know like the fold away grills and um you know it's i mean it's i thought photography was bad for collecting kit and now i'm kind of like <laughs> yeah yeah i know yeah like what is it build a second shed <laughs> just for the storage i'm moving home right now and my, my my buddies are laughing at me because i have a pallet of stuff to get sent to finland and they're like a pallet of stuff how do you have a pallet of stuff i'm like dude you have no idea how much camping gear <laughs> it's insane oh, yeah. Yeah, but um, to come back to your work, actually, because I know that you do a lot of, um, you like to do some um, film as well. And when I say film, I mean video, um, mm. as well as photography. And I was wondering, is there a possibility that we could see some potential bushcraft videos coming down the line from you yourself? Or is that going to, are you going to keep that completely away from your, your other world? Well, you know how much hard work bushcraft videos are. Yeah. The old... The old walk off and walk on to camera shots and all yeah. that crap. Yeah. yeah. Um. I. I don't know, man. I don't know what I could bring to the table that there aren't isn't already being brought to the table by very talented people. It's your own um, experience, though. It's your own yeah. personal journey, you know. Yeah, I might do. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like, to me, I'd rather keep the kind of thing to enjoy enjoy the kind of the actual act of doing it without without having to make a film about it because mm -hmm. the act of making a film about it as you know involves then running back up the hill setting the camera on the tripod and then picking it up and doing this and doing that of course worrying about having to have to have a means to charge all the batteries and stuff um i kind of almost would i prefer your idea of you know i'm a photographer through and through that's my and and for me video is something that i've only started really doing in the last kind of 10 years because of necessity rather than a particular desire to do it i mean i've worked as a dop on shoots and i really enjoy doing that because you have none of the other responsibilities of so when you're a photographer you do all of it and you have a team of you know a commercial shoot you might have a team of assistants and you're directing it you're kind of figuring out you're the creative lead you're figuring out the lighting you're doing all of that and when you're a dop on a set all of those jobs are so kind of um that's director of sorry that's a director yeah of director of photography for sorry for anybody who's not familiar yeah. with this term yeah or or a cinematographer would be another way of, of of calling it like all you are caring about is kind of the image and the and to me that's hugely liberating because all of these other decisions are taken off your hands so as much as i i mean i when i see a good video that's been shot and especially a good bushcrafting video i mean they 
they're awesome um i i also am so aware of how much hard work goes into them and you know i don't know i watch this space i might right, do so my, right. my 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 youtube channel predominantly was set up because it was more uh and it is there's, there's not much on there it's mainly kit stuff and it's mainly photography stuff um and that's always what it was intended to be but i think i might start doing some more kind of uh bushcraft related videos and, and kit reviews and you know just my 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 two pennies on things yeah, yeah. um two pennies <laughs> yeah um yeah so i don't know i mean it's it's an interesting question though i think yeah. i would like to if i was working with someone else then yeah and i mean you know like i mean at some point we've got to get a exhibition expedition under our belt because absolutely i reckon we could create a killer video Absolutely, dude. I was just about to say, I was like, do I say it? No. <laughs> but yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Yeah, for sure. I, I enjoy working with other people on video. I just don't mm. enjoy doing it all myself because it's, mm. it's so much work. Well, um, I, I was thinking about, um, again, um, not to keep bringing it back to myself, which I, you know, it is irritating, but going over to Finland, I'd be really close up north. And when I was in the Arctic in Sweden, I didn't get a chance to document any Sami people. Uh, or any mm. of the native cultures up there i it was really close to doing it there was a photographer up there that was taking photos for um a very the biggest kind of local newspaper or not local but the biggest in, uh, national newspaper in sweden and i didn't get to go with them on that trip to 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 talk to the sami people but finland also has a massive culture of indigenous sami people up in in lapland mm. and that is one place that i absolutely for sure would love to get up and either camp mm. or photo photograph or document or, or a bit of both you know um, yeah. So maybe that's something that we could uh, look at in the future together once this madness so, dies down. Sounds great. Yeah, that'd be in. cool, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, maybe I suppose just before I let you go, man, it's been an absolute pleasure mm. to talk to you. Is there anywhere that you haven't been yet that you or any sort of experience that you'd like to document? Not doesn't necessarily have to be a geographic location, but is there anything that God, you haven't shot? Yeah, well, that all night, dude. <laughs> um, I mean, so I've been very lucky over the years to work quite a bit in across Africa. Mm -hmm. um, worked in, I think I worked out the other day. I've worked in um, over between like sixty to seventy countries. I think. Wow, um, that's a lot. And I would love to just keep doing that. I used to have a thing that where like every year I would try my aim was to try and visit one at least one new country and not on my own dime like to mm -hmm. be sent on assignment to right and i don't know how that's gonna fare now because mm -hmm. with the way that international travel has been affected and a lot of my kind of travel clients are really suffering or have folded you know so it's going to be interesting to see how long that takes to recover and also you know i've now got a kid um and you know, so traveling, like when I was younger, I would think nothing of going away uh, just on, you know, by myself for a while and, mm -hmm. and shooting my own stories. But I can't really do that so much anymore. Yeah. But I do, I do try and keep these kind of longer term projects. So I've still got vast, you know, I did this project on gauchos in Argentina, but I, there's still like a lot of, um, I would love to do an extended project in Mexico. I'd planned to do one a few years ago. Uh, okay. I wanted to do something there on a similar kind of, uh, similar ilk i would love to spend more time in um i've worked a bit across asia but i would love to spend more time in japan 
Mm. And as someone who shares my kind of love of design and photography, I mean, you can fully understand why. 100%. Like, there are yeah. so many aspects of that country that I find fascinating. Honestly, um, that's my also my my place that I would love to go. As I've always wanted to visit Japan, man. It's just it's been it's top of my list for sure. Everything that they design, like in terms of you know silly down to silly things like stationery, is just so well thought out and so beautifully it's intentional. Done. Yeah, and. Their camping kit. I found some really obscure, like Japanese camping brands over the years that make the most beautiful, run you know, bits of camping kit. Oh my god, man! Even the Japanese um, bushcrafters. There, have you seen any? Uh, there's a couple of Japanese guys I follow on Instagram, and their accounts aesthetically are just like so. Their photo shoots, like they're so particular about their photos, um, and they have these beautiful, you know, canvas tents with a little you know torch oh, hanging off it and i mean they they love their kit in japan they are kit nerds and mm. um, they mm. love anything that falls out that is also a thing yeah. that is also you know they love their gadgets and stuff obviously um but yeah for sure dude what a, what a cool yeah. place what a cool place and i i'm also kind of quite attracted to islands like i like i like um places that I mean, I grew up by the coast, by the sea, and and so I've always been kind of, you know, and obviously, you know, we both come from kind of island nations. So mm. that when, you know, we grew up never being that far from the sea, and I think right. there's a certain type of mentality that creates. But I like the idea of visiting kind of these much smaller islands in the South Pacific as well. Mm. Um, right. I don't know. I, I, there's so many places, man. There's so many places. <laughs> Just there's not enough days. I've, I've not got enough world. time. No. Yeah. No. I, <laughs> Absolutely I know. not. Um, uh, well, you're very you're very lucky in 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 the sense that um as you said you've been able to see so much of the world through through your work you know and, and mm. having somebody else pay for that flight is is a real a real privilege but mm. obviously you had to work hard for that so you know it's it's amazing to i see think it, man. yeah moving forward it's kind of those to get to just to kind of touch on that question again i think for me that the my interest and in, in where this crossover happens with the kind of bushcraft and outdoors and you touched on it earlier is that feeling of, of photographing stuff that's dying away partly because I'm curious and partly because I want to help preserve it. You know, there are ways of life that I think should be celebrated and that are going to just be lost unless people are aware of it. You know, be, getting to spend time with the Hadza was such an immense privilege, you know, witnessing the way that they hunt, witnessing the fact that like how they, you know, their, their method of friction fire using their arrows as their kind of, you know, the, the way it may, you know, like the fact that they, they use the, the, the sap of a desert rose as a poison for the tips of their arrows, the way that they can find honey by, by following the honeybird's calls and they work, they have the symbiotic relationship with the birds because the bird gets the wax, um, you know, they get the wax and the, and the hunters get the honey. And then like, it's, there's so many like amazing skills out there that are kind of being lost and being forgotten and being overlooked in our race to be kind of the biggest consumer, you know, for what? Like, and I feel like humanity's kind of on this weird um, crash course for digital conversion, where we are gonna end up just living entirely in digital worlds. Um, And I think probably speak to a lot of your listeners who are bushcrafters out there, they're, they've, they've seen that that's happening and that their reason for wanting to be out in the wild is because innately there is something within us that we remember from our deep, deep past, from this kind of these, you know, going back generations and generations, the same reason why 
there's nothing better than sitting around a fire and chatting with other people you know it's the same thing it's that feeling that something is missing in our modern lives and that the place we have to find it is in the outdoors and in nature and out in the wild and by doing that and by going out there and doing that we're also finding out something about ourselves i couldn't have said it better myself man that's, yeah you're right i mean it's the answer is simple it's not complex it's just get outside light a mm. fire be with people you know sleep under the stars <laughs> and i think we need to encourage that in our societies and in our culture and in our communities you know and, and because there's a generation of people that are growing up in very urban environments who see the the woods in the same way that you and i would see a jungle yeah. see the woods are somewhere scary and inhospitable but yeah. it, it doesn't have to be you know um no i agree and, and it really doesn't have to be for sure and and i was reading um and not to get too i suppose overly political about the whole thing but um i was reading a um i guess it was a document from i think it was made in the states and you know the those really dense urban areas particularly in the united states they always tend they tend to be predominantly um african american black you know black and brown kind of cultures and stuff and and as a result of that i think you know a lot of the people that do get outside and do like you know this bushcraft thing it's it's a white man's game for want of a better mm. word i would love to see a more um culturally diverse group of people around the fire as oh, well 100 percent. you know yeah 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 100 percent. and it needs to be and the only way of getting that though is is by making sure that it remains inclusive and that people are kind of open to new people learning yeah. and getting involved because there can always in any walk of life you can end up with cliques and kind of people being a yeah. bit cagey about stuff and yeah that's not what we need we need no. like to encourage people to get involved 100 percent, man well i think between you and i and everybody in our community i think we are we're more than capable of uh of making the pe people more aware of the possibilities in the outdoors um but greg it's Amen been to that yeah, for sure, right? But it's it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. It was awesome to finally get you on the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it, man. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, take care, man. Okay, folks, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Trial by Fire. Um, I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview as much as I did. Um, obviously, there's a lot of photography and nerd stuff in there, but his work and his, uh, his lifestyle, I think there's a real crossover there and it was really fascinating to just hear some of his stories and and how he's able to use uh, his career to to further his travels and his adventures so um want to thank greg again for coming on you can find him on instagram greg funnell um is his personal photography account and then the weekend woodsman is his is his uh, bushcraft account so make sure you guys follow him um but yeah thank you again as i said um make sure that you guys check out the patreon as i uh, spoke about at the beginning of the podcast it is live now so there's going to be exclusive content for people we're going to have bonus episodes we're going to have some merchandise merchandise that you can only get on patreon and um, so if you guys want to show your uh, your loyalty to the podcast as you know as i do appreciate then make sure you guys get yourselves over there and um, also go on itunes and apple podcasts and make sure you rate and review uh, the podcast because it's really important for us to get those ratings up um, and get in contact you know you can contact us through trialbyfire.net or you can contact me on instagram any thoughts or things that you'd like to share with uh with me i'm always 
uh, happy to hear from you guys so um enjoy your week and we will talk to you again soon with another episode Thank you.